It's a parent's job to socialize a child and to set limits and boundaries. And it's the child's job to find them. And they find them by testing. We need to give up the romantic idea that you should just say something to a child and they should listen. Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I am your host, I am here today with a really special guest, especially if you're Canadian, you're going to know everything about her. Um, but before we bring her in, I would love to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. They are housed here at the Neuro at McGill, and I'm really grateful for their support. And also, if you're enjoying the Curious Neuron podcast, please take a moment to review it and leave a rating on iTunes. And you can come and join us on Instagram and join our community of growing, uh, our growing community of parents of over 66,000 parents around the world, and we are learning about science and how to apply it to parenting. And speaking about parenting, I have such a guest today. I have Alison Schaefer here today with us. She is one of Canada's leading parenting experts. She speaks around the globe about Adderlean psychology and democratic parenting methods. She has written three parenting books, including Breaking the Good Mom Myth, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids, and Ain't Misbehaving. She's the host of TV's The Parent show as well. She has her own podcast, The Adderlene Way. And if that's not enough, she's also a three-time TEDx speaker. Allison, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited about our conversation. <laughs> it's, it's the perfect intersection of everything that I love because I, I love meeting other people in my community. My first degree is actually in science. Mm. And then I'm third generation in my family to to study and learn about Adlerian psychology. So uh, this is this is a perfect coming together. And that's that's why, you know, when we were chatting about the topic, I really wanted to have a general chat about parenting with you because of your background, obviously, and, and all the parents you've spoken with and your years of work in this field. There's a lot to talk about, especially, you know, I was talking to my own mother and my mother-in-law, and they talk a lot about the fact that things have changed so much across the years. Um, you know, they'll say sometimes that we're, my generation's a little bit more sensitive or we've, we're, we're too picky on things and we're, we're, we're focusing in too much on details. We're going to talk about all that with you uh, today. First, I'd love to uh, get an idea of where you come from and what that theory is that you were talking about. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, So, you know, I'm here in Toronto, Canada, and um, I have been teaching parent education for 20 plus years. I have a private practice, so I see families and family counseling here. I've opened um, several nursery schools and I, I speak and train counselors internationally. So I'm down in the field with parents all the time. And and I do have a bit of an interesting background in that I am third generation in my family mm-hmm. to to practice, learn, study, and teach this information around Adlerian psychology, the word that everyone says wrong. Yeah, I know. It's so hard. So it's based on the work of Alfred Adler. And um, Alfred Adler uh, had a, I, I'll give you just a brief little history to put him in context. There was really three people in history that that moved psychology. We, psychology kind of moves in waves. And so at the turn of the century, we really saw a very big change in the theoretical tenets that we understand around human psychology now. And those three big brains that worked together were in Europe uh, around the area of Germany and Vienna, and it was Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. And then this guy, Alfred Adler. And of course, everybody knows Freud and everybody knows Carl Jung, but everyone's like, who's Adler? Never heard of Adler. (laughs) But honestly, the New York Times wrote a big piece on the 100th anniversary of his death. He died in 1937. And uh, they said, never before has there been such a theorist that's made so many contributions and whose ideas have been stolen without any credit being given due. We've basically just adopted and accepted in so many ways the premises that he um, that he came up with in his sparring and debates, you know, because he, you know, started off working with 
with Freud and then they disagreed on a lot of things. So, but they, but they were intellectual sparring partners. So they needed each other to agree and both mm-hmm. disagree in order to evolve their individual theories. And Adler was really uh, the, the only one of those three that really dove deep into creating a child guidance system. So the other ones didn't really get into parenting and Adler did, you know, the, the history of the day is that all the schools in Vienna at the day were, you know, trained in Adlerian principles. And uh, he had these child guidance offices in every school. Apparently the juvenile delinquency rate dropped incredibly during this period. And, um, and he really brought a, psychology to the public in the sense that it wasn't behind closed doors. I mean, he would he would present publicly and, and talk to, to, to people. It wasn't this hidden squirreled away thing. So he's he's quite avant-garde and, and, and quite an interesting person to, to study. But his, his theory is alive and well and living under the auspices mm-hmm. of so many other multi-generational, like, you know, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Abraham, everyone knows that. Um, but, you know, Abraham Maslow studied with Adler. And the same when we look at Martin Seligman and, and positive psychology and his PERMA, mm-hmm. that all of that is is mm-hmm. under the Adlerian umbrella and all cognitive behavioral. So so many contributions, I can't even tell you, but I, I mm-hmm. loved him because he was all about or uh, child guidance and and um, raising kids that were cooperative as opposed to obedient, and that's the big the big differentiator that I talk to parents about all the time. You know, you mentioned something in one of your Facebook lives where you spoke about this study of um, photography students, I believe, and it, it just really also marked me because it's something I talk about with parents as well, where these students, the ones that had the better pictures, and, and you could you could summarize the study, but the, the, the ones that had the better pictures were the ones that weren't told to do it perfectly and that were told to take as many pictures as possible, right? And it kind of encourages or or pushes the fact that we don't need to be perfect or even with our kids, um, the, the idea of making mistakes. And as parents as well, I think that my generation of parents were kind of stuck on making sure that we're perfect. Um, but there's this idea of that, that we don't have to be. It's such a good point. So, you know, one of one of the Adlerian tenets mm-hmm. is about this notion of having the courage to be imperfect. <laughs> and and that's a really big philosophical piece, not only for Adler, but, you know, going back to like stoic philosophers. Mm-hmm. And of course, this has been supported in research. And I'll say more about that photography research. But this idea that when you're born, you know, you are an infant trying to figure out your place, uh, trying to find your way. And we're social creatures and we want to belong, we want to fit in, and we know how much modeling and all those things, you know, has has to, to do with how mm-hmm. we figure out how to get through life. But we're growing all the time. You know, we're growing from somebody who doesn't know how to walk to somebody who's a toddler who figures out <laughs> being bipedal. And, mm-hmm. you know, we all are born nonverbal. We can babble, but we all learn our our um, mother tongue. Uh, we're, we're so motivated to fit in, to want to belong. You know, and then, we, you know, then we learn our times tables and then, you know, we learn how to cook and we, it keeps <laughs> going and going and going. And gosh, I'm almost 60 and I'm still learning. <laughs> we're, we're, I hope that we are lifelong learners. Mm-hmm. I hope we're constantly evolving and uh, growing from our experiences. But then we have to accept that if we're always growing and learning and evolving, that at any one moment, we are an imperfect version in that I am not as good today as I'm going to be in another month because I'm going to learn a month more worth of stuff. So part of Adler's, you know, tenet here was if we can appreciate that the the growth process, mm. it, that we're always growing and evolving, but we're always perfect in a sense. We're we're perfectly imperfect <laughs> as as sort of just a condition. And when we can get really comfortable with that, that actually allows us to grow and and develop more because we don't get hung up on I need to do it right, do it perfectly, or or else I am somehow worthless. Mm. So in that in that example of the uh, research that was done on the photographers, you know, he broke the students yeah, into the two different cohorts. And so one was produce as many f- photographs as you can in the school year. And the other one was, nope, you only have to hand in one, just hand in your best. And mm. when he marked them, he found that the people that actually got made the best photograph of the whole year weren't the ones that were tasked with handing one in. The people that produced the best photography of the year were the ones that took a thousand shots. And mm-hmm. so this idea of repetition and learning and go back out there and try again and all this iterative process. And 
if you're courageous and you don't say that's a terrible picture, I'm going to, I'm going to drop photography. I'm, I'm a, I'm a crappy photographer. <laughs> if you're willing to sit in the uncomfortableness of taking bad shots and keep going anyways, then you're going to become masterful at your art. And so we've seen this time and time again with research that those people that can weather being imperfect and making mistakes and not thinking that it's going to devalue their worth, if mm-hmm. they can see it through a learning lens, and we see this with Carol Dweck's mindset research, mm-hmm. yeah. then then we know that that kids fare better. So the courage to be imperfect was well before any of that research, but that was um, that was one of Adler's basic philosophical tenets that we need to have the courage to be imperfect and get on with what needs to be done without worrying about external appraisal. And so, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't around when we had social media and FOMO and likes <laughs> and all that crap. But yeah. he certainly got the idea that, you know, if you post a picture and you didn't get enough likes and then you take it down or he's got so many followers and I don't, you don't have the courage to be imperfect. We, we got to let go of all that mm-hmm. stuff. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's hurtful to the human condition. I think it's such a beautiful way to kind of guide ourselves as parents, because if we could, you know, have that mantra and, and keep thinking of that as, you know, as new parents and as we have more and more kids and, and evolve, at least... It's, it's like less of a stress on us, number one. And number two, we're going to model this for our children, which will help them in school, right? That idea of trying, like you said, it's about the number of pictures that the, the students took. That makes a huge difference. So I, I love that so much because I do think that we're in this world and the parents that I speak with will often say that, like you said, social media brings um, a lot of stress on them because they see these perfect worlds and um, perfect parents, perfect parenting experts, and then they feel like they're failing, right? They have a child who's having tantrums and a child who isn't listening. And I think it's important for um, many people that are talking about parenting online, and I, I try to do this as well, to talk about our learning opportunities and, and where we, you know, situations where we learn something. It's such a good point, Cindy. I mean, I my first book is called Breaking the Good Mom Myth. And the reason I wrote that book was because in therapy, I had so many mums coming in that were just so wrapped up around trying to be good mothers according Mm -hmm. to social Mm -hmm. norms, which are grossly misunderstood (laughs) uh, and misrepresented and around a lot of false values and this need for perfectionism with the worry that if I mess it up, and and going back to sort of the historical perspective on this, Mm -hmm. if I mess it up, then my kid is going to be messed up for life. And I'm going to have to open the bank account now for them to get therapy when they're older because I yelled at them today, you know, because I was just (laughs) having my you know, hashtag not best mummy moment or whatever. So I want to, you know, explain why historically we didn't have that same angst. And that's because one of the wonderful (laughs) things that we've learned from research, which I love, that we didn't used to know Mm. before, is that environment matters. We honestly did not know that parenting... Mm influence children's development. We we used to think that it was just genetic, that's how they were born. And um, you know, if you had a bad kid, you would you were more likely to, mm-hmm. you know, go to your clergy than to go to your doctor. Um, you know, you wouldn't have gone to a psychologist. They didn't exist back then. And basically your clergy would say, well, I guess, you know, if he's acting badly, he must be a sinner and pray more or something. <laughs> like this is this is this yeah. is the sum total of the parenting advice that you could get back in the day. And then, you know, we started doing research that says, no, in, in those early environment and the early developmental years and how you parent and how you form an attachment really changes the trajectory of a child's life that'll shape and form them, you know, in, in all mm-hmm. the years to come. And as soon as we learned that, which was a, a very important contribution to the research, the problem is the interpretation of that research by the lay public was that somehow our kids are no longer robust. Mm-hmm that they can't handle any uh, emotional strain or yes. stress, that, that that you're going to break the attachment if you let them cry or mm-hmm. put them down or don't do things perfectly. And this notion of fragility really threw a wrench that we suddenly had to do things perfectly without any emotional turmoil. True. And, and so we, we really messed up how we thought about parenting kids. So we went from this, they were very robust and kind of 
to be seen and not heard. And we had, we, we ruled with an (laughs) iron fist and we told them what to do. And the goal was really to raise obedient kids who would mind our will. And we had no guilt about it because we had no idea that threatening them or Mm -hmm. yelling at them was a problem. And and so I love just thinking about the classic Mm -hmm. sound of music. Do you remember he, the Von Tropp family, and he would blow that little whistle and lethal and everyone would come line up and they knew their little individual whistle. And then Maria comes along and she pleads with him saying, you know, they just want to be loved, you know? (laughs) And so we just all got on the love wagon and, you know, Adler predicted that whenever there's social change in whatever uh, domain of, of a society, So in this case, we're talking about parenting, but typically when there's social change, usually the pendulum swings way far to the other extreme. And as Mm -hmm. we reject things, so for example, in Germany, after the war, um, people were just allergic to the idea of kids wearing uniforms at school because it just reminded them too much of Hitler youth. Mm -hmm. They've only started wearing uniforms Mm -hmm. again in Germany at schools in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the pendulum, like we make these corrections in, in, in compensation to something. And so we had this very autocratic style, this, you know, our, our hierarchical colonialism, monarch, monarchies, caste systems, we had this rank and file. There's a power structure and you have the the will to control those people underneath you. We have a long, deep, deep history of that. And so when we started to embrace mm-hmm. ideas of social equality, and when we realized we needed to be more respectful to children, the pendulum swung the other way. And we got this very extreme kind of doormat, hyper permissive parenting, which creates a whole other set of, of problems. Um, in, in fact, Adler posited that that kind of pampering, he called it pampering, that's sort of an oh, yeah. old name for it. It's it's more than spoiling, it's, it, it's something else. But, <laughs> you know, when we when we uh, don't spend the time training our kids to 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 fit into society and socialize them, then we get these these in uh, sort of self righteous uh, entitled kind of kids, and that creates as much neurotic mm. problems later in life as as neglect and abuse. And I think that parents don't know that mm-hmm. that that they're setting their kids up for. Mm-hmm as much problem as abuse that neglected children have. And I think that's a horrifying thing for them to hear, but we're starting to move back into that middle ground. And um, so that's what I like about my, my work. I, I'm not, um, uh, I'm, I'm not an extreme on, on either end. And it's, it's finding that middle ground that is, is respectful parenting, but respectful to parents and respectful to the child for both. And, you know, I think it's all the, titles and types of parenting <laughs> that are out there right now, um, whether it's positive or attachment or responsive, I, I don't even know how many there are now. But when you look back at the research, it's exactly what you just said, where you're balancing that nurturing, which was missing before, right? We, like you said, I, I posted a question box in my stories on, on Instagram, and, and there were two common um, posts that people wrote about how they were parented. One was about like not being seen or heard and not having a voice and always having to comply with Without asking questions, that's how they were raised. Um, and the second one was spanking, but we could probably talk about that after. But y- you're right that nurturing and being seen was not very present before, and now we know that that's really important for children. But there's been this misunderstanding um, about these types of parenting that it doesn't require any limits or boundaries, and that's what we see in, in research that you have to balance. Yeah, them. I don't know why we got so allergic to limits and boundaries. And can I just say to your point though, just yeah. you know, for listeners who I, you know, I want. To help them understand the whole, you know, are you positive parenting or dolphin parenting or pod parenting mm-hmm. or like, I mean, there's so many names. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there's so many names. And I, I just, I just want people to understand that we're more alike than we're different, really. What, what ends up happening, just, I'm just sharing this as a business person. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to like create a website, you're going to get a book published, you're going to create a podcast, like you have to brand yourself. And so a lot of these parenting styles are not so different. It's just that authors and experts are required to create their brand. And so they kind of keep coming up with new freaking names. And it, and so parents are like, oh, oh my God, I read this book and that book and this book. 
look, and it's this type and that type. And there isn't that many types, parents. It's branding. And so I, you know, (laughs) that's why I always say Adlerian because I want people to know that name. I always say Democratic because that kind of tells you like of the kind of schools of thought. If parents want to know, I'll say, go to the back of the book and look up punishment and rewards and see whether Mm -hmm. they are pro or con for punishment and rewards and look up logical consequences in family meetings. If they're into punishment and rewards, then Mm. it's a different school of thought. If they're into family meetings and logical consequences (laughs) and no punishment rewards, then you're probably falling in my camp. Call it whatever animal (laughs) you want want to call it. (laughs) And and it is important for parents to do that. The, The punishment and reward part is another really interesting conversation because it comes up very often still today. You know, that's a very common question of what do I do when my two year old doesn't listen and and on my end, my response is is usually that emotions are part of a child trying to communicate a need. How would you look at it from your end? Yeah, um, I would say we need to give up the romantic idea that that you should just say something to a child and they should listen. That is an obedience model. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a parent's job to socialize a child and to set limits and boundaries. You know, it's not okay to put your mm-hmm. socked feet on top of the dinner table while we're eating. That's rude. We don't want, you know, it, it's, it's important. You, know, yeah. you don't talk with your mouth full. We have to socialize our children so that they can join the group and, mm-hmm. and, and understand how to function in a group. If you don't, you have an isolate and, and they're, they're going to have all kinds of mental health issues if they can't mm-hmm. find their way in a group. So it's our job to socialize them. But I never have the assumption that they're going to just blindly listen. So it's my job to set the limits and boundaries, and it's the child's job to find them. And they find them by testing. Just like teaching a rat to run down a maze, they have to figure (laughs) out the path and the pattern. So they learn by trial and error. So I don't feel any Mm. kind of character flaw or frustration when my child doesn't listen. Of course, I'm going to say the first time, hey, get off the couch. We don't jump on the couch. I'll try it once. But then when they don't listen, I don't take it as disrespect. I take it as it's their job to find this limit and boundary. So I guess I'm going to have to do some parenting and and go establish this limit and boundary. So I, you know, I'll I'll go over and say, can you get off the couch or do I need to help you down? And I enforce that limit friendly, firmly by, by doing it and friendly in that I'm not upset when I, when I expedite. So Mm -hmm. the, the not listening is a real misunderstanding of, of Mm -hmm. the, the motivation of kids' behavior in the first place. I had posted um, a couple weeks ago about you know, spanking and when, you know, it's, it's still very common. And legal in Canada, I'm afraid yeah, to say. Yeah. What sort of advice do you give to parents? Because I, I mean, I summarized the research around this, right? So maybe some parents think that by spanking, the child will listen and that's a way of discipline. But we now know through research that the con- there are consequences to spanking. But whenever I post about it, I always get some parents who you know, talk about the fact that they were spanked and they turned out fine. And now they're doing the same thing because they're doing it with love. How do you approach these sort of topics? Besides showing the research, because to your point, we know we have the research to back this up. Um, and, and the anecdotal, well, I got spanked and I came out okay is one of my, I guess the one counter argument that I say is, and imagine how much better you could have turned out if you weren't spanked. If you're already this great, maybe you would have been even amazingly better. But what what I really do, I say that kind of tongue in cheek if I, depending on the relationship I have with the person that I'm talking to, obviously, Mm -hmm. but mostly because my goal is to get them to stop spanking. So I really want to make that emotional alliance with them, you know, as a parent educator or as a counselor. And so what I say to them is, my guess is, is that you're doing that because you feel it's the best course of action. It isn't because you get any kind of gratification spanking them. So what I say is, if I could show you a different way and it was yeah. as effective in changing their behavior and you didn't have to hit them, would you be okay with trying that? Would you try something else? Because their motivation isn't like, I need to get my frustrations mm-hmm. out. And so I'm going to like, you know, I want to hit mm-hmm. my kid. Like that's domestic violence, as you know. Um, I'm, I'm, but if they're doing it in the name of that's how you correct children's behavior, then I just simply say, hey, I have a way mm-hmm. to correct children's behavior and you don't need to yeah. spank them. Wouldn't that feel nice? And most parents, like, they're happy to give it up if you give them another tool. So I always say to parents, I am not going to take away something that you are doing that you feel is effective without replacing it with something that is going to be sure. equally effective. So because most parents don't, they they resort to spanking and some of these crazy things 
out of a, a bankruptcy of ideas. Mm-hmm. So once I load them up with more tools in their toolbox, they actually feel better about themselves using some of the other methods. So I don't have to actually really get into the why it's mm-hmm. bad. I just need to get on with teaching them other things they can do instead. You know, tools is a key word because I think as parents, we're, we don't have to know how to do it all as soon as we have a child. <laughs> I, I naively thought, you know, I got this. I have you know, I have my degree. I know what I'm doing. I understand development. And I realized when I became a parent that I I knew absolutely nothing. But there's a beauty in not knowing anything because you start filling up that toolbox with tools by making mistakes, by, you know, figuring things out. And that toolbox, you know, sometimes we, we don't know what to put in it or we're just missing a certain tool that we didn't get from our own childhood or our own past. And we just need to develop those. And it makes a really big difference, I think, in, in the way that we parent. Oh, absolutely. And you know what, even when we go about reading new books and following blogs and Instagram Mm -hmm. accounts and learning new things, and we're loading up our toolbox or whatever, the truth is when you get into crisis and your back is up against the wall again, you go back to what you know. (laughs) And I think that's where a lot of parents get upset because they know they shouldn't yell and they did, or they know they shouldn't punish, but Mm -hmm. they already have. And and, and that's just what happens Mm -hmm. when we're in crisis. And a lot of the work that I do with, with parents is, you know, you can go so far implementing tools and techniques and working through situations or whatever, and then you find that there is something else that's holding you back. And so if you're somebody yeah. who just like cannot tolerate your, your you know, let's say it's sleep training or something. And if, if you yeah. have a narrative in your mind that if my baby cries, I'm, you know, hurting them then we have to go back and find out how did you come to believe that and what happened in your childhood and what missing experiences did you have? And, you know, and there's always some kind of backstory about fear of rejection or fear of, uh, you know, that they were neglected or they weren't Mm -hmm. cared. They didn't get a primary need met. And so we have to kind of unpack, we have to go back into our childhoods and how we got wired because it impacts our ability to, to be relational in all situations and I find that's where sometimes the parenting difference comes. Not 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 so much that. Well, I guess I I like to tell parents if you if you parented exactly the same, one of you would be redundant. Of course, you're going to be different people. You're <laughs> you're you're a human being having having a human relationship with another person. It's mm-hmm. as unique as anything on the planet. You're, you're not going to have mm-hmm. the same relationship between kids. But if you if you're having trouble and you're fighting about how you approach things in parenting, usually it's because there's a background story that the the other parent doesn't know, hasn't heard, doesn't have compassion mm-hmm. around. And so I think it's pretty powerful when you come to counseling and you get to hear about other people's emotional experiences and and why it can trip them up and set off their fuse box in the moment. Yeah, <laughs> that is a big one, right? So the whole emotional experience part you mentioned before like being able to sit in the uncomfortableness right and and i think that that falls back to a big problem or 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 challenge that we have as parents where many of us might not have been raised in an environment where emotion regulation skills were taught you know it was buck up and and stop crying or you know just get past don't you don't have to be mad or don't be sad whatever it is it it led to us not getting the tools to learn how to manage our emotions and then we have kids that start having, you know, big emotions and tantrums because developmentally appropriate, but then we don't know how to manage their uncomfortableness because we can't manage our own. So I think that's a really big part. It's such a good point that we talk all the time about kids having to have emotional regulation. And when you think about why we're so concerned about that, it's because parents have emotional regulation problems. <laughs> They're like, make my yeah. kids stop crying because it upsets me. Make my kids stop screaming mm-hmm. because it upsets me. We're supposed to be the bigger, yeah. more mature person. We, we should be able mm-hmm. to sit with all those emotions. I mean, as counselors, we're trained to sit with everybody's pain, with everybody's anger, with it, you know, like you have to be the bigger mm-hmm. person and, and, and not just say like, just get back to your happy state because I get dysregulated when you're dysregulated. Yeah. But, but to your point, a lot of us <laughs> didn't get that training as children because it's kind of a new, no. it's a new science. It's a new conversation. This was not talked about, you know, uh, whatever, even oh, yeah. what, even five, five, maybe 10 years ago, this is like a really new discussion piece. But that's why I think when our kids are having tantrums for the first time, we're like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> what is this? I can't, I can't deal with this. <laughs> You've got to like get past this and stop these big emotions. Cause I, I don't know what to do with these. And, and they're very uncomfortable. Um, what sort of advice do you give when it comes to a parent struggling with their, their child's, you know, emotions? Well, you know, I'm a big, 
well, first of all, come for therapy. I'm I'm so pro therapy. You, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Why <laughs> suffer when you can you can get some support for sure? Yeah. But I would definitely say in the area of emotional regulation, mm. again, going back to finding out why why is that uncomfortable for you? What's the story there? And we we can unpack that in therapy. But just as a general piece for for anyone listening, this is really the work and why we why I'm such a big proponent. And again, there's tons of research to back this up. This is why we do mindfulness meditation. People have such a misunderstanding of what that yes. is. They really think it's like just sitting on a mat and mm-hmm. trying not to think. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You're you're rewiring the no. brain. You're learning about emotional reactivity. You're learning to to not associate with all your mm-hmm. your your thought patterns. It, it's creating an opportunity for choice and responsiveness rather than reactivity without thought. So there's so much that you practice on the mat that mm-hmm. you then bring into into your everyday experience, and it and it has to be practiced because it is literally a a neurological event. That, uh, you know, it's like, it's why mm-hmm. they use the, uh, the metaphor of kind of doing mental pushups, you know, you, you build strength, you build, <laughs> you build stronger neural connections so that you're able to mm-hmm. be less reactive when you're in those tough situations with children. You know, the reactive part, or I, I didn't know that I had like sensory sensitivities and, and this meant nothing to me before being a parent. I'd go to concerts, even when I was pregnant, <laughs> I was like, I, I loved noise, but then something happened when I became a parent and all of a sudden I was extremely sensitive to sounds by the end of the day or touch by the end of the day, or um, just like the sight of seeing like a house is a disaster. I have three kids. Um, you know, th- I, I, would, I would become triggered very easily. And I started going to therapy because I realized something was off and I, ne- I needed to deal with it. But we don't realize that our thalamus, you know, a, a part of our brain is linked to the amygdala, which is emotions. And when the sensory overload happens, all of a sudden emotions get very big, just like with our kids when they come back from daycare, for example, right? Sometimes they are having more emotions and more tantrums and meltdowns, and it's because of their system, their sensory system. So when we understand that part, then we're able to better understand ourselves in those emotions in those in those situations and our children as well totally you know and there's all kinds of things that we know that um are 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 more sensory loaded in modern life than in the old days like you know, there, it really was a good idea to walk five miles to school because part of that was that you were actually <laughs> getting some yeah. exercise and burning yes. off some of your stress. And now, you know, kids, yeah. are, they're driven to school and they they don't move. eat their like Starbucks yeah. cake pop full of sugar, <laughs> which doesn't help. And, you know, school used to be um, a more social mm. environment and now it's all about getting oh. A's. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like life has become a, a growing mm. stress ball. And, you know, back in the day, we, we had um, very different social structures that, that allowed for more dissipation yes. of stress. And um, there's a wonderful book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. <laughs> and it, it does talk about the fact that like, you know, out in the big C- Sierra land, when, when animals were stalking other animals, if the leopard was going after the gazelle or whatever, you know, you had that one moment where your adrenal system (laughs) would go into high drive, you know, for fight, flight, freeze and Mm. preserve yourself. But once they were back into safety, they would give a shake, you know, animals, if you watch animals, like they'll shake after Mm. they've had one of these moments and it dissipates, it allows the nervous system to reset. Mm. And that most of the illnesses that we attribute today with heart disease, cancers, um, diabetes, these are all things of a bodily stress response that doesn't get the respite of relief. So a zebra Mm. runs and then recovers, runs and then recovers. So we are as humans, we are wired to rest and recover, but we don't recover anymore. We go, 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 stress, 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 stress. And kids' lives today in 2022, and certainly in the last couple of years with the pandemic, oh yeah, yeah. childhood does not look the same as in the 20s and the mm. 1890s and the Middle Ages. It, mm. Childhood now is incredibly stressful. Uh, we are doing a terrible disservice to our children the way we are raising them in, in, in modern culture. Yeah. And yet everyone does it because they're trying to keep up with the Joneses because exactly. they think that, well, everybody has to be in three extracurriculars yes. and everybody has to know five <laughs> languages and... You know, um, and if my kid doesn't have an A in every subject, then I better get them a tutor. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy. 
It is. It really is. You know, and and I've spoken about the education part piece as well because we put so much pressure on our kids at such a young age, um, and that could be that could be a whole conversation on its own. But you know, like you said, especially with the past two years, I've been talking to parents who are burnt out, just beyond stress, and just kind of going with you know the flow every day, but not being able to sit down and and take a breath, and and it's an overload. Um, how do we stop this ball that's, that's, I don't know, it's too late, but like you said, right, it has changed so much and it's a disservice to the kids. So how do we stop this yeah. from, from continuing? It's, you know what, it's never too late. I, I mean, that's a real big message I always like to tell parents. It's, I mean, I wouldn't be in the profession of change if I didn't think change couldn't happen. The mm. beautiful thing about human beings and and I'm so delighted in it, it, it's a privilege of my occupation to have people come to me in in dire situations and then to see them get better. And mm. it's not because I have any magic. I really believe that everybody has within them. They do the work. I mean, I provide the counseling, but they go home and do the work in between sessions. So humans are incredibly resilient. And um, so any so every situation can change. Every person can change. You're not fated to anything. So that's, mm. I think, a, a good optimistic share there. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing I would say is, um, like I said, it's really about challenging the social norms. And so just because something is common doesn't mean that it is right or good. For, you know, years now, we've been talking about kids being overscheduled, for example. Yes. It was really interesting yeah. when the pandemic hit and we went into lockdown and then suddenly people weren't overscheduled because mm-hmm. they had to stay home. Mm-hmm. And what we found was one of the silver linings around the pandemic was that for a group of parents, a group of families, Mm -hmm. people found that it was the first time they were really connecting with their kids because they didn't have to get them off to t-ball and ballet (laughs) and Kumon classes. Everybody Mm -hmm. was at home. And so suddenly people were doing board games and hanging out together. And, and so they reconnect, some families reconnected in a really meaningful way. And I've been trying to encourage them to say, stay with the slow movement. You know, don't, don't start adding, don't go back to the speed you were before. Um, Now for other families, there was already some cracks in the relationships and the foundations of the relationship. And, you know, if you were, you know, kind of fought with your kids to get them out the door to school, and then you fought with your kids to get them off to hockey, and then you fought Mm -hmm. with your kids to do their homework and go to bed. All right. So it wasn't a great day, but you could kind of manage it. But suddenly when they were home, 24 seven months after months after months, those relationships that weren't working really imploded. And we really saw, you know, oh, I really don't have the relationship and I don't have the parenting skills and I don't have a strong family. Hmm. And we saw the collapse, the mental health of many people, um, parents, children, domestic violence, yes. you know, yeah. it was it was terrible for those families that, that weren't okay. So I think we do have to challenge what modern culture says is a normal childhood. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just really about um, saying, what is it to raise a human being? You're not raising a product to put into uh, 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 the, the, the workforce. Yes. That, that's Thank not, you. which is yeah. how parents go at it. They think yes. they're creating a widget that's going to get a job in the workplace. We're creating yes. a human being that's supposed to be loving and kind and find a way to contribute and give back. And so I think we have to stay like a little bit more philosophical. Mm-hmm. Well, we do cut, we do get caught up in their future, right? Because of the way that society now is, and they have to do well in school, they have to become, uh, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever it is, and we have to push them and push them. Um, like you said, all the extracurricular activities. And in the end, when you look at the research, it's it's about open ended play. It's about freedom. It's about time where there's nothing else to do but just be present. Yeah. And we're not being present. We're not present with our kids because we're thinking about all the work and the stress around it and all the, ne- you know, what's next, what's tomorrow, what's tomorrow night, the day after. Um, and we really have to step back and, and slow things down for them. Yeah, and I think, and that's, you know, when we talk about uh, the difference between parenting and grandparenting, I think that's, you know, it's a generational thing, but it's also because grandparents don't have the same agenda mm-hmm. and they aren't trying to multitask and get somewhere. So they are more likely to be in flow in the moment you know, stop while the ch- child, you know, picks through yeah. dandelions and splashes in the puddle because they don't have to get that kid to school to get back <laughs> home so they can unload the dishwasher. Um, there's, And so I think <laughs> if we can try to take a lesson from what it would be like to step into 
the grandparenting part of ourselves. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be unrealistic. <laughs> of course, I understand that dishwashers do have to be unloaded and things need to get done. <laughs> and can I tell you, Cindy, I think it's another part that where modern families have, have fallen down and where things were different in the past. We expected mm. kids to pitch in and work and be part of a team. Yes. And now we just say, just your job is just to go to school and be smart. So we don't ask kids to, to you know, if, if you're wondering why mums are collapsing, it's because they shouldn't be making dinner seven days a week and they shouldn't be doing all the laundry and they shouldn't be doing all the dishes. Mm. Children are supposed to contribute, and but not as indentured servants, not because you have free slaves, but because they're part of a team and because it takes it takes a village to to make the the community work and if if you get kids who have a feeling of th- that they're a part that they belong and and they want to see the best for all just like you see you know kids on a soccer team saying yeah let him go play we want to win the pennant let him have the ball you, you know we want our, our kids to feel a part of of the family and to have a say and to have an influence and to contribute their time exactly. and talents and interests and, and to put those good talents to helping the family. Like if you have a computer kid, you might say, you're really good on the computer. You know, can you help research, you know, our flights for our family holiday? Or, you know, can you go download all the flyers <laughs> for the grocery store and find where the sales are this week? Kids love <laughs> to help when you ask them to, to, to that way, and right? So of course, and those are life skills. Absolutely. So we've stopped mm-hmm. asking kids to contribute and, and, and uh, it, it doesn't help them and it doesn't help us. Even um, with parents who have very young kids um, and they try to, I don't know, coordinate their days so that, you know, the child is busy or watching TV and then they can get some laundry done or some, you know, uh, house chores. I always say the same thing to parents where it doesn't matter if your child is young, they could pick some socks and they could match socks. Um, and that's a great cognitive skill. <laughs> you know, there are so many things that we could do to include our kids, even that moment of breathing. That was the biggest misconception I had after having my third child. I had zero downtime. And then it started affecting my mental health because I had been kind of trained to think that I needed to be away from all this, but I couldn't be away. I was home. And then the pandemic hit and I had my three kids and that's when everything became very difficult. But then I realized that my my personal time or me time could be with my kids. If I want to read a book, or if I want to read not a whole book, but like two pages or have a hot coffee, I could include them in that moment and show them that mommy needs a moment to sit and breathe. And the more I saw that with them and included them, they started saying, hey, mommy, I need a moment. Can I go to my room and and take a moment away from my two brothers or whatever it is? And the dynamics of the family became easier because they were part of it. Yeah. If if parents are wondering mm. too, to your point about like, you know, you, even a two-year-old can pick up a roll of toilet paper and like, you know, put it in a, in a <laughs> yeah. you know, basket in the bathroom. Um, yes. I do have a list of uh, age-appropriate contributions that kids can make. So if you don't know, you know, what at what age can they do their own laundry? At what age can, can you expect them to do this or that? Mm. It's it's on my homepage. People can go to my website and get that. Uh, but I love what you're saying about about taking your downtime and kind of going with the flow instead of against the grain and and how much easier yes. that is on our systems. And I train my kids very, and I, mm. I mean, I brought them into the conversation, but I always said to my kids, like, you know, if we're going to have a good day, what does a good day look like? You know, what do you need? What do I need? How can we all get our needs met in the family? And I did need my quiet. I mm-hmm. love to read. And so I, I, it was very clear to my kids that, uh, you know, in not so much during the, the, uh, work year, but, you know, we would go way up to my, um, I have a cottage up north. And so we'd go there for the summer mm-hmm. and I start my morning with my coffee on the dock reading my book. And my kids know <laughs> you don't bug mummy when she is on the dock with her coffee. Re- and, and I've also trained my neighbors. My neighbors don't talk to me either. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so I have my brothers. If I'm if I'm sharing the cottage with my brothers, are like, nope. Allison's down on the dock. She's doing her reading. We don't bug her yet. But you 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 train people. But it also means that I also say, okay, good. I've got my reading out of the way. You know, now now let's get on with some of our other things. So um, mm-hmm. so I think you can claim that, and I think men are much better at this. I hate to always go to gender here because every family is different, and uh, you know, I'm, I don't mean to have gender stereotypes, mm-hmm. but. In general, men seem to have a better time at saying, I'm going to go play nine holes of golf and have no guilt about it. And yet a woman is like, oh, I can't possibly go to book club. I can't possibly. Mm. We're, we're, we're so crappy at self-care. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, we're just yeah. a bunch of martyrs. And yet, mm. really, 
you know, kids want their parents to be happy and refreshed. So Mm -hmm. going back to the science, it's not really about whether you do homeschooling or daycare or, or home care, whatever. The important thing for kids is that they are in the presence of an adult who is emotionally available and, and connecting with them. And so for me, that meant, look at like, I got about three good hours of parenting in me before I need a break. And so I either need to hand you off to a program, to my co-parent, to a, to a grandma, to a nanny, or I need to go take a nap. Um, because after that is downhill from there. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I got in me. That's all yeah. I've got. And I'd rather, I'd rather hand you off to somebody who's so excited to see you than to see me go on to hour four and be all, <laughs> you know, snippy and rude and falling apart. So um, I, I, it's funny, the hour four thing, we, we often talk about like, the four o'clock parenting change (laughs) where by 4 p.m. a lot of parents and a lot of moms in particular say like, I'm not myself anymore. I don't parent the way that I usually parent at 9 (laughs) a.m. compared to 4 (laughs) p.m. Oh, I remember that I would like be calling my um, then husband. I'm divorced, but back then I, I'd call my then husband. I'd go, um, when, when are you leaving work? He's like, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> oh, it should be in about 15 minutes. And like, I'd call in 15 minutes. Have you left yet? Have you left yet? I'm like, I need to hand off. <laughs> I need to hand off. Yeah. <laughs> Every minute counts. The moment he would walk in, I'd be like, bye. <laughs> go upstairs. <laughs> Yeah, it's so hard. And I think that we do need to accept that and to give ourselves that grace to say, you know, I'm I'm done. I need a moment to step away with the kids or without, you know, if you can step out of the house, whatever it is. But we have so much guilt, especially moms. We have so much guilt around needing anything, needing personal time, needs, whatever our needs are. Yeah. And, and again, so here's another kind of how modern parenting is not being helpful. One of my chapters in mm. Breaking the Good Mom Myth, I talk about the entertainment mom. We somehow think that we need to just entertain our kids, that we are supposed to be their constant playmates. But you have to realize, like, yes. if we've grown up to be 35, 40 mm-hmm. years old, it is developmentally appropriate for you not to be excited about playing with Lego. <laughs> Exactly. Why yes. do, why do you think a 40-year-old woman with a master's degree is going to want to play Lego for 40 minutes? <laughs> so, yes, I I would get down on the floor and and play with my kids. I absolutely did. Mm-hmm. Some games I would tell them. There were certain games that I'm like, actually Lego was one I liked. I like I could play Lego for a pretty long time, you know, but but some of the like dress up <laughs> mummy be my horsey and let me ride on your back. I'm like, yeah, I got about 10 seconds of that. That's I'll do it once, <laughs> once around the living yeah. room, but that's it. Um, there were certain things that were very time limited for me that I just didn't enjoy doing. Um, but the idea of saying, and now you guys play on your own because I am going to go do a chore or I'm going to start lunch or I'm going to return emails or I'm going to sit with a book or I'm going to do something else. Mm. I am, I am not here to, to be your constant companion and that kids can learn and yeah. should learn to overcome boredom, create their own games, learn how to get along with their sibling mm-hmm. or, or entertain themselves on their own. And you're not failing your child, you're enriching them by by allowing them to have those experiences. Boredom is so important. And and I think that we fill those gaps. It's again, that uncomfortableness, I think, Yes. of like, my child isn't happy and they're not comfortable. So here, grab a screen or do this, or here's an activity or whatever it is. And we need to allow them to be comfortable with those moments because that's where the creativity and the learning happens. Absolutely. And again, going back to the nervous mm-hmm. system, you know, like when was the last time mm-hmm. you saw kids lying on a hillside looking at clouds saying, oh, that one looks like an elephant and that one looks like a whatever. No, they're going to uh, grab an iPad and yeah. they're going to be, you know, infused in, in through multi-sensory excitement around roadblocks or something where their dopamine systems mm-hmm. are going to be drenched. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's true. To sort of end our conversation, what would you say to parents that maybe feel lost right now and, and have lost their sort of guiding compass in terms of parenting and, and they just need a, a, like some, a word of advice? You know, that's discouragement that settles in, right? And, um, mm. and we all get discouraged. And I, and I, and I do understand that. Um, first of all, you're not alone. That, you know, we, that yeah. brighter days can come. And I think to find your people, find a community, there's so many great online communities now. When I do my parenting classes and I just go around the room and I ask people, what what kind of issues do you want us to, to, to cover in this class? And when the parents hear that, like, your kid has a tantrum, your kid won't brush their teeth, your kid refuses to go to bed, 
by the time I get to the end of the list, they're like, this course has already paid for itself. I just thought it was only me. <laughs> and, and the truth is most of us are going through the same problems. You really are. There's a lot of camaraderie out there and a lot of people that would make you feel better about what you're going mm-hmm. through. Professional people to offer help for sure. But sometimes just that, just peer support to say it's okay. And of course, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of parent education, but I think we get flooded with reading all these books mm-hmm. and what we end up doing is we lift the bar of expectation even higher. So the discrepancy between our expectations of all our research and all the things we should be doing versus what daily life looks like, that gap gets bigger and our misery grows in proportion to that gap. Mm. So I would definitely say, instead of thinking about increasing your reality to make it look like all these high expectations, Instead, do it the other way around. Reduce the gap by lowering your expectations. You probably are already a good enough parent. This is why I think that the research on gratitude is is so important here, where you look around and say, there's a lot going on well here. And maybe it was only five minutes of how much I enjoyed, Mm. you know, reading Goodnight Moon to my kid. And we had this little snuggly moment. It was only five minutes. It was still a beautiful moment to say, wasn't that great? (laughs) You know, I can really find moments to connect with my child. Um, I think most of us are doing more right than we give ourselves credit for and and kids need less than we think they need. And I think when we become (laughs) kind and compassionate and gentle towards ourselves and change that little nasty voice in our head that's always sort of self-deprecating our parenting, I I think that's a a big step forward in just being gentle with ourselves and and having that faith that the kids will be okay. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do any kind of change, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. You just, you know, just tackle one thing thing. Just just one thing, whatever. Get bedtimes figured out or just get bath time figured out. Like don't don't That's take true. on everything and then get exhausted. Nothing changes and you fall apart again. Baby steps. One small little little baby steps. Mm-hmm. I'm reading Atomic yeah. Habits right now. It's fantastic. Oh I am too. I'm halfway through it. Yeah. It's amazing. It's true. And it's all about the little baby steps and habits and creating, you know, even now with my kids, there were certain things I was struggling with in terms of habits during the day. And now I link it to something we were already doing. And now it's getting a bit easier. But like like you said, it's baby steps. It's it's a bunch of baby steps and you will be parenting for yeah. a very long time. So you got all kinds <laughs> of time to bring this boat around. So don't, don't get discouraged. Yeah. That's such wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Allison, for chatting with me. Where can we find you and learn from you. Oh, thank you for for, for the interview and the time <laughs> and uh, the great conversation. And thanks for letting me mm. just give a little pitch for where else I am. So basically <laughs> everything links off my website, Cindy. So if people go to alisonshafer.com, it's got all my social mm-hmm. handles. Um, I post regularly on Instagram and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Twitter and, and, you know, LinkedIn, all the, all the major platforms. But I also have a, a, a Facebook group for parents mm-hmm. of teenagers. I have a regular Facebook group, mm-hmm. but I have one just for teens because they're kind of a different animal and <laughs> need different support. Yeah. And then Thursdays, I do my, a Facebook live. Eastern Standard Time, 12 noon to 12.30. So if you have questions, you can jump on there and, and I'll answer your parenting questions there. Or you can send me in parenting questions and then I, I answer those on my podcast, Parenting the Illyrian Way. And again, there's a page on my website for, for that as well. So um, hopefully Perfect. people are intrigued to want to learn more about um, mm-hmm. democratic parenting, um, these concepts of, of Alfred Adler and raising kids with mutual respect in a firm and friendly way. And, and I think mm-hmm. those... The the learning comes alive when you start hearing that. Well, what do you do when he's pulling his sister's hair? And what do you do when they don't? <laughs> and I'm happy to get into those details and they can follow <laughs> along there. I will post all those links in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much again. And thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, you can join Curious Neuron on Instagram at Curious underscore Neuron. And don't forget to leave a review. I will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.